listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Welcome to episode one of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hall. And I'm Curtis Hall. And this is going to be a podcast um, that's designed to create nuanced dialogue in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. So whether you're a hunter conservationist or a non-hunter conservationist or nature lover or whatever you call yourself, outdoor enthusiast, um, there's going to be something for you in, in these podcasts over, over the life of them. So I hope you'll join us. So we're today in uh, Fernie, British Columbia, here in the Rocky Mountains in southeastern British Columbia, and uh, we're joined by guest um, today, Clayton Lamb, uh, at his place here in Fernie, looking out on some freshly covered snow mountains. Looks like October out there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, Clayton lives and works here in the Elk Valley in uh, southern British Columbia. You are uh PhD candidate from the University of Alberta doing a thesis on grizzly bears yep. here in southeastern BC, um, amongst all the other research that you're involved in. Um, Clayton is a uh, Vanier Scholar and a Weston Fellow. Correct. So what are those? I mean, like you're a good guy and get good grades? <laughs> so he's, a, he's a is, good fellow. <laughs> <laughs> the Vanier is um, Canada's most prestigious scholarship. It's given out to 50 people. Uh, 50 PhD students across all the sciences in Canada. Um, so I was a recipient in 2016, uh, and it lasts for three years, and I'm just wrapping that up and just sort of also wrapping up my PhD this fall. Yep. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a really good opportunity. The funding is very continuous, and it allowed me to actually move from U of A to here in the Elk Valley so I could continue my work on site instead of having a TA or something at the campus. And yeah. so I could live here and interact with the people and be more present for the bears and the research. And yeah, it's been a really uh, positive opportunity. You're definitely the uh, envy of the Canadian scientist <laughs> world where you live because you're always posting these pictures of these beautiful mountains and your laptop sitting out on the deck there with the beer and stuff. Or skiing, and, not working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let the data let the data crunch and I'm up to the ski hill. <laughs> So, um, before we get into the very, in, very important topic, uh, close to your heart on uh, grizzly bear conservation, let's, let's touch on another really important topic is, uh, so what do you think of wild turkeys? Oh, uh, <laughs> first hunt a couple weeks ago, uh, with you, Mark, um, pretty phenomenal experience. We were out there for what were we chasing for seven hours, seven and a half yeah. hours, walked in, in the fir forest in the dark, no headlamps. Turkeys were gobbling all over the place, and then we uh, called in a couple toms, didn't get a chance, and then we actually started following them with the ones that we saw, and then the eagle came in and mm, yeah. tried to, there was three toms, was it? Yeah, there yeah. was three together. Three toms working their way through the forest, and then out of nowhere, an eagle swooped in and tried to like predate upon one of them. Take one. Yeah. Made a couple runs. Yeah, and him. we were just sitting there in the forest, and... Then they came towards us, and then it just gave us a neat opportunity to harvest one of those toms, and it was just awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really neat experience. It, it was a it was an awesome day when you when you take people out um, hunting, kind of like sort of you know for their first kind of experience on something. It's usually it's usually like 
you know, normally we will see some <laughs> deer here, but something is, this is not normal, right? Uh, where in, in uh, our case, when you're out, I was more like, okay, everyday turkey hunting is not this good. <laughs> There's usually not this many, many birds and this much activity around. But It was really exciting. Yeah, it was fun. And, and that eagle came crashing down to the trees. It was funny. Your your first instinct was is there's a turkey flying <laughs> out of the tree canopy. <laughs> well, just not really. And it was funny because it just out of nowhere, the corner of my eye, this big bird swooped in, and then the turkey ran out of the hill. So it just seemed like it had a turkey had come in, landed on the ground, and ran at us. I was like, that is so strange. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we saw this. It was a golden eagle, and he was, was running on the ground like he was. Like a raptor, like yeah. on the ground chasing these turkeys chasing. on foot. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was just oh. it was very strange. It was like one of those uh, BBC documentaries, oh, yeah. Planet yeah. Planet Earth thing, where you no kind of go, "How did they ever get be in the right place to film that?" So just amazing, <laughs> and uh, I mean, the turkey was just great table fare, and I brought it home and cleaned it all up, and I ate like almost four meals out of the one breast. Oh, I, I yeah. saw the second breast and all the legs and all the other pieces, and yeah, really, it's, neat. Am- it's of, amazing how how big they are. So. on there. It was really interesting, you know, watching you afterwards. I mean, this is the the scientist in you and the biologist, and I think just the person appreciates wildlife, but you just spent so much time just kind of like just looking this bird over, like stroking its feathers and the colors and how it was put together and, totally. you know, those big raptor-like feet and stuff. And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. Like you were you were very interested in, in that animal itself and like first time getting your hands on one to kind of like, and, and, and we talked a little bit about how that experience kind of changed how, how you see that, that species now. Right. And, and, uh, we kind of had a little conversation sitting out there that, that, and you said how difficult it is to communicate this type of experience to people in, in in harvesting uh, an animal or the turkey in this case that creates that bond and you said you won't look at you or you will look at turkeys like differently now like there's they have that value you have that connection to them and yeah I think you know if you're driving by and see turkeys uh, they could just be sort of like not a nuisance animal but just some other strange <laughs> bird on the side of the road that you yeah. don't want to hit with your car but <clears throat> All of a sudden, you know, we hunted them and had a whole day and then I uh, had meals out of them and shared them with a group of people. And all of a sudden, when I see a turkey, I think much more, you know, of that experience and it kind of adds some um, some depth to that yeah. animal and that experience. And yeah, it was kind of neat. We sat there and looked at the spurs and looked at the feathers and, you know, checked out the head, which was really cool. And see, it's a pretty unique opportunity because you could just drive by Absolutely. and see these turkeys that, you know, somebody just ran over or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. this sort of... It, they were a very unique animal that it was a, um, a unique opportunity to really have a look at them like yeah. that and, and share some respect of the harvest and all those absolutely, sort of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You, you're very, very appreciative uh, ethos the way you approached it. So, I mean, man, I could do like two hours on turkeys. It's just, I just <laughs> love that subject and I probably will down the road be doing some, Maybe four. some turkey podcast, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So let's, um, let, let's, um, switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, talk about grizzly bears. Um, give us a little bit of background on this species. Uh, where, where do they fit in? How are they related to the coastal bears? So grizzly bears are the, uh, largest carnivore, um, in North America besides the polar bear, but, uh, basically, you know, south of, um, well, not south of 60 degrees cause there's oddly polar bears 
way down in um, Manitoba there, but basically in our more southern latitudes and most of the carnivores that uh, the average Canadian American would interact with, it's largely the grizzly bear that's the largest carnivore. And um, uh, that's sort of the gill that they fit into, but they're also, they're largely omnivorous. They eat uh, meat and berries and um, lots of green vegetation. And that kind of depends on where they are geographically and what they have access to. So like most species, they'll eat whatever they can. And so if they have access to salmon and they're like these pulse kind of resources, they'll eat salmon. But here in the interior of British Columbia, they don't have access to salmon resources like they do on the coast. So here they're largely um, vegetarian type species. They eat a lot of grass and um, berries is sort of the high, uh, high energy food that they're eating here. Um, so they're wide ranging species. Their home ranges are uh, females sort of in the range of like 200 to 500 square kilometers. And a male is oh. about, say, 400 to 1,000 square kilometers. And that is sort of dictated by resource availability. So areas like here we are in the Elk Valley is a really rich area of food resources. There's, um, there's a lot of calories on the landscape, and so they can actually have quite small home ranges. Whereas even right across the continental divide in um, Alberta, they have almost double the home range size because they have drier ecosystems, not as high quality and productive um, foodscapes for those bears. So yeah, much, much larger home ranges, even, you know, a hundred kilometers from here. Yeah. And man, when you look at this landscape down here, like roads and towns and infrastructure and stuff, a home range that big is cross-cutting across a lot of, oh, yeah. a lot of humans. For sure. Yeah. 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 They, that's sort of part of the conflict connectivity conflict that these animals have is that they can't, um, in these sort of landscapes, it's very hard to not interact with humans. Yeah. So um, you sort of have this adapt or die type landscape. Like either you learn how to figure it out or you don't. There's only really two options Okay. Um, as an individual grizzly bear. So uh, we have we have very high mortality rates here. But um, as a result of that, the animals that survive also do relatively well at adapting to this landscape. They go more nocturnal and, you know, can use these little kind of fringes of habitat that are left. But um, undoubtedly, we support a lower density of grizzly bears in this valley because of um, the, the human impact in the, the valley. The human impact. We're, we're taking up a lot of space here. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 And um, I guess some other things about grizzly bear ecology generally, um, people are the weight of a grizzly bear is always an interesting one for me. Like people, uh, <laughs> you know, like how big is a grizzly bear? And it, it varies dramatically. Like, you know, the, when they're born, they're this big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Through time for sure. Yeah, the little footballs, little furry footballs when they're just born. Um, some are probably out there right now. It's uh, April 28th, 27th. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like on the coast in Kodiak, you have, you know, 1,500 pound brown bears, which is the same species, Ursus arctos. Um and then here in the interior, like it'd be very rare to see a, a male bear over 600 pounds. Yeah. Like that would be, that's the biggest bear we've ever caught actually yeah. here in the Valley. And so I've caught 44 individuals and we've caught a couple hundred in the flathead. And so that's, you know, we catch them, we, we live capture them, we um, uh, anesthetize them, put them to sleep, and then we weigh them with a the scale. So we know their exact weight. And so uh, the average male is about 500 pounds. Okay. Um, and a female here in the valley is like, they're not topping the scale at more than 350. The average female is like 280, 320 sort of thing. Yeah. So, and in contrast, there's, there's black bears that are double that size in America. 
Yeah, so, like, in, we the, have, in the eastern states where they're totally. in all the acorn mash. Yeah. 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 So, like, I mean, there's there's spots where black bears are bigger than the grizzly bears that we have here in this valley. So, or as big anyway. Yep. So, um, yeah, their their size varies quite drastically across North America for sure. And we have relatively small, uh, we call them small fat bears here because <laughs> they, uh, they eat so much fruit. So, um, wild fruit, huckleberries, buffalo berries. Um, and that's all sugar laden. So they're sequestering that sugar and turning that into fat. And so they have incredibly high fat loads. So they're, it allows them to be smaller, but sort of these plumper, rounder bears. Yeah. So they yeah. can have like 35, 40% fat when they're in really, really high condition. That's like, you know, multiple inches of fat on their rump. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Cool. Now they're going to burn that off like over the winter time and they're going to be not yeah. so plump right now. And Correct. Yeah. A good chunk of that. And some of them, some of them will come out with a good amount of that, like even 20% fat, 25% fat. But uh, yeah, some of them will burn it right down. It, it just depends on how the winter is and whether they have cubs or not. Okay. There's sort of this magic line for a female of like about 20% fat for them to go into the den to have cubs. So they kind of got to break that like 20% uh, fat by, by weight or else they won't really be able to support their, the cubs they're going to have because they have them in the den and they have to wean them. They have to provide milk for them in the den and all the time that female is not feeding. So they're, um, and they, they don't really hibernate. Like that's a bit of a misnomer. They, it's called torpor, which is, you know, those yes. two are like a bit of a, just more like science jargon, but hibernation strictly means that you go into like uh, a very deep sleep and you're body temperature goes very low. Like you totally shut down and you become like refrigerated almost. But grizzly bears do not. They go into den and they sort of shut down, but their body temperature doesn't drop. Um, it doesn't drop substantially like it does for hibernation. So they could almost get up and start cruising if they needed to within a couple minutes. Whereas something that's hibernating like a ground squirrel or something, you could like almost pick it up. And it's like, this thing is very cold. Yeah, because you see researchers that are doing work in the wintertime on black bears and they can literally like go into the den if they call or they know where the, the, the den is and yeah. like bring the bear out. And well, those are anesthetized though. Are they? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, so they can go in there and, and uh, they like jab stick mom. Okay. And I I guess to be fair, I don't, I've sort of wondered why we don't do that for grizzly bears. And I asked, <laughs> uh, I felt like they're the same. It should be the same, but I asked Bruce McClellan, who's one of my mentors, and he, uh, he's colored grizzly bears and been sort of a world-leading uh, bear researcher in uh, Canada for over 40 years now. Yes. I was like, well, why can't we do that for uh, grizzly bears? And all I said was, well, why don't you try it? <laughs> so I just kind of assumed that seeing as he hadn't done that, that I was not going to. <laughs> okay. There's one of those things where when, when you're uh, d- doing your, your PhD under somebody, they're sort of like, those are the things that they send you to do. <laughs> the rite hey, of passage. Hey, yeah. go, go in there and... Natural selection. Yeah. One big one is just that, um, you know, say in the States, uh, the brown bear, the black bears are, say, on the edge of a, uh, whatever, cornfield or in a sort of rolling um, foothills type scenario. But our grizzly bears are denned at 7,000 feet on a north facing slope, on like potentially an avalanche terrain and under 13 feet of snow. So just even logistically, that's quite a difficult situation to go and even get to that den. So that's, that's probably one of the main reasons we don't go into their dens and count yeah. cubs. So we actually, next week, we, we fly. So uh, all of our collared... So the reason that they're going to the den for the black bears is to count cubs. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, check on the cubs, see how many there are, see how big they are. And we don't do that, but we replace that with flights. So all of our collared um, 
brown bears, our, all our color grizzly bears, we follow their collars in a helicopter and then count them visually. So we're going to do that next week. Okay. Once, once they come out of the den, yeah. then you'll, you'll see they're on the move exactly. and then you got to hopefully get a look at them out in the open and yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so the collars have their, their GPS collars. So they're sending locations every six hours, like up to the satellite and down to my computer, but they also have a VHF beacon. So every couple seconds it's, it's sending this beep frequency out and we can actually pick that up with a receiver that um, we have on the ground or we can do it with a helicopter. Yeah, so yeah. The old school he- way. Yeah, so the nose of the helicopter has a receiver on it and our pilot is just like, this is what he does for a living and he'll just find that bear. He just kind of moves the helicopter around as if you're like, you know, moving the receiver around in your hand. Okay. Makes you sick pretty fast because he, <laughs> he like, he'll do, do like a 180, like just sort of spinning, like to survey the landscape, but you're in there and you're, you're the antenna doing the 180 and it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> And then, but yeah. and then once the bear uh, figures out what's going on and starts to do some maneuvers <laughs> to get yeah. away from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you did, you did some, some work. I remember seeing some stuff put out on, um, on their rub trees and, and their behavior around that is, yeah. is, uh, is interesting. Maybe just explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, we run a DNA market capture program here, which basically means that we collect hair, genotype it to individuals using genetics and then we can estimate a population size that way and account for missed animals and all those things. And so we collect hair two ways. We do it um, using bait sites where we actually like lure the animals in um, with some cow blood and put some barbed wire around that area. And then we use rub trees, which is a, a natural uh, area that the bears are rubbing on already. And then we put some barbed wire on the tree and they rub on that. And um, most people at first glance are like, oh, that must be horrible, like rubbing against barbed wire. But uh, we actually find that they start to rub more when we put the barbed wire on there because um, they naturally rub on these really rough bark trees and they are depositing scent on there. It's a chemical communication thing. Okay. And I'll get into that, what that is in a moment, but they rub on it so much that they actually smooth the face of these trees off and it gets really sappy and it becomes very smooth and it, they basically can't like rough the tree up as much anymore so when we put the barb bar on they just seem to like get right into that barb and like scratch an itch and then leave a little bit of their scent as they're doing anyways so yeah anyways we get hair from that barb then um and uh yes we can genotype that to individuals as i say and the what we basically found looking at the rub trees is that um they are largely driven by the breeding season so they rub almost at double the rates during the breeding season which is sort of maybe next couple weeks from now, like May 15th to the beginning of July sort of thing is the main time that they're breeding and the males will double or triple their uh, rubbing rates during that time. And the females will also rub a little bit as well. So there's kind of this communication, especially here in the in the Rockies where um, there's sort of two problems. One, as a male, you don't want to uh, get into conflict with another male, like a, a physical conflict. So if you can signal your dominance um, chemically, then you can avoid a very costly encounter because obviously these two 600-pound animals trading blows is a very costly thing for both of them. Yeah. Even if you win, you know, you're still going to take some hits. Um, and the other one is then just finding a mate. So uh, even though we have a number of bears, you think about if you just wander around the landscape, it's relatively rare to bump face to face into each other. So you do have to kind of actually find each other. So there's sort of this chemical communication game they're playing between both sexes. So male to male, 
for conflict and then male to female and potentially female to male, like two-way communication just to locate each other for the breeding season. So the rub trees are kind of like the original dating site. Totally. Yeah. 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 Just like Tinder. Yeah, go ahead. It's <laughs> called, called Timber. Timber. We'll make it your grizzly bear dating app. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's <laughs> so so the is the old thing about like the bears reaching up on the tree and scratching it and the yeah. high mark thing is that is that a real thing that definitely or, happens okay. oh yeah and okay. they and i don't they they reach up but they also bite um yep. and i i'm trying to think there's so many good videos uh like from parks canada and stuff and i don't know if i've ever seen them do the biting but i've seen it on the tree like you can you can see it both sides, like the canines in there. Yeah, I've seen it with the black bears, the yeah. big, the big boars that are traveling in area. Just bite the side of a tree and yeah. just, yeah, take a chunk, chunk out of it. And, and I feel like with the grizzly bears, it's almost kind of the high mark biting too, like where you're, where you can bite, because they'll bite uh, like eight, six or seven feet up that tree, you know. So okay, so there's some visual and yeah. and scent chemical communication going on out there in their world totally and i think there's also i mean it's it's something that we don't really understand very much but i think that the paper that i published was like maybe the second or third paper that it really kind of got into exploring the behavioral mechanisms around it so um and ours was really just a first pass at it like the our study's not designed to understand the behavior of it but we had some really unique data from like 500 individuals and across almost a decade of sampling to kind of start asking those questions um but recently there's been some more sort of fine scale stuff looking at the actual chemicals that are they're communicating with. So they can show um, between seasons, like different pheromones that are being used, um, between sexes, who's sort of sharing different pheromones. So it kind of scales all the way from the way that I look at the world, like, you know, a 12,000 square kilometer area and looking at individuals all the way down to the specific pheromones that individuals are sharing. So science is very scalable that way and it depends, you know, at what level you're you're interested in. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so uh, there's also, you know, there's the tree pheromone piece where they're actually rubbing on the tree but uh and i'm sure that you guys have seen it that the pads the steps when you walk up to it there's like they're very ritualized when they walk up to those trees so they will step in the exact same spot every single bear will and they have um uh scent pads on their feet as well so that's you know sort of a it's a scent marking thing as they walk up so the reason those um those foot marks develop is because they're stepping and then twisting their foot okay yeah. yeah And they're depositing scent. So some of the really well-used rub trees, there'll be a dozen steps and they kind of like waddle, like they wiggle their body. And it's a very ritualistic thing, even walking up to this tree. So yeah, it's quite an interesting. I've seen the pictures on coastal British Columbia where they've documented those, but they're in like the old growth forest. So there's the deep moss layers (laughs) and they're like these little post holes, right? Like just hundreds, if not thousands of years of you know, stepping it. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So that's what, that's what those are. That's, that's very interesting. We always thought like, we just kind of thought it was just something they, they did as part of the heading to the tree, but it, it's also part of the, the um, signaling, the chemical signaling process, you know, oh. we found out, yeah. Huh, that, yeah. Is, that is fascinating. So there's always all these so sort of complex. things that we are learning. But, I mean, on the flip side, um, I don't know if you guys have ever read Campfires in the Canadian Rockies by William Hornady. He was, okay, yep. Yeah, he was one of the first um, people to write about this valley that I can think of i'm sure there was people before but yeah here in, in the modern valleys that go over literature. to the bull river yeah yep. so in Bruley creek yep and so uh william hornady was 
the curator of the New York Zoological Society. Yes. And um, he came on a collection mission, you know, where they would actually say like, shoot goats and then see what they were eating and that kind of like the old school biology and zoology. And um, he, in Bruley Creek, which is a spot that I've wrapped trees, I've collected grizzly bear hair, when he was riding through there in like 1905 or six, he was talking about grizzly bear rub trees and like what they probably do and things like that. So even though it, it feels like you know, we're here breaking new ground. It's not really new ground. It's like new ground in the scientific literature, but there's, you know, people on landscape that have been seeing these for a long time and, and people way before um, William Hornady, like the um, First Nations folks and all those things. Yeah. yeah. So it's, um, it's sort of common knowledge that we're bringing to scientific light, I guess. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So, so when there's major disturbances on the landscape, like a fire or logging or development or something like that, it must cause them to have to kind of reconfigure their, their systems on the landscape to, to keep communicating that that's, I think there's, I don't think anybody has any idea about that. Yeah. We have, well, I mean, um, you know, about the landscape change around here, like the degree of logging in the last sort of 10 years. And we've had a number of trees that we've monitored for a decade that are gone. Now they've been logged. They go to the sawmill, which must be awkward with the barbed wire on there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think a a sawmill would like that, but um, yeah. So, I mean, we have no idea what that does for a a bear population. I mean, we assume that they could just go find the next tree and start rubbing, but we actually have no idea if that's true and what the, what the time um, of development of those trees and if they can, if they can just go and start, you know, make their scent foot scent pads and just go at it at the next fir tree or if it like the, the communication post breaks down for a long time. And yeah. I mean, these, these animals are living in a landscape that even, you know, before logging pre-contact Europeans showing up here, you know, and starting to change the landscape that fires dominated the landscape. So that would have, you totally. know, potentially even been on a much larger scale affecting that. Sure. So they, they obviously must have a mechanism yeah, to, that's fair. Yeah. you know, they might be like, oh shit. This is going to be, I got to re-download the timber app. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ch- check it after a month and there's like zero messages, <laughs> zero DMs, darn forest fires. So what, um, what, what are some things specific about grizzly bears? Um, you know, even on a bigger scale, that's that's making them of a conservation concern. Obviously, a big one is, is they are long-lived, they're um, um, slow to mature, and therefore they mate later and have fewer fewer offsprings. Yeah, you know. So yeah, that, I mean that's a big one. Your capacity to deal with any sort of we would call it top-down pressure, like being. Uh, predated upon or shot or anything that's sort of causing your mortality um your capacity to deal with that goes down drastically if you can't reproduce very fast and so grizzly bears um they we call it the age of partuition which is your age of first um litter that sort of ranges from as early as four or five and that's very rare to as late as like eight or nine years old so and the average being about six or seven so that that animal has to live on that landscape for like almost seven years before it can even produce, can replace itself. Um, and the, the replacing itself really only, we only consider um, the cub to be recruited into the population after it becomes a dependent young. So the female will have the cub for about two, two years, two and a half years. So 
uh, if you have your first cub at seven, you're almost 10 years old by the time. And if you can survive those cubs, which doesn't always happen, you're almost 10 by the time you've replaced yourself. And so, you know, populations only continue if you can produce enough to replace yourself. So um, two bears mate, there has to be basically two bears produced um, yeah. at a minimum to keep that going before they die. So yeah, that when you start doing the math and that, it's, it's quite uh, a slow uh, reproductive rate. And then um, they will sometimes mate right away. So they could get rid of those, uh, they'd be two-year-olds then, their cubs. And they could mate right away and actually have cubs again that next year, or they actually can wait and so then be dry for a year and then uh, reproduce the following year. So it could be the interbirth birth interval can be two to four years, basically. So yeah, and then those offspring have to reach that age yeah. of patronation in order for them to start it. So there's a bit of a gap there oh, too, yeah. right? So like another... their mother could start over, Yes. yes. Um, but they're not even capable of Correct. rearing. So Yeah, and the females, like the animals that keep the population going is definitely, definitely a disproportionate load on a few females. So in the um, flathead, for example, there are some females that uh, Bruce has monitored up to like 30 years old. The oldest female we've monitored there was 33 years old when she was she died. She was actually shot um, and her collar was tied onto a pop bottle and sent down the Flathead River of all strange things. Into Montana. In, yeah, and it, the, it um, so it was taped onto there and it was these colors fall off and just, you know, go down the river sometimes. So we, we knew it was in the river and we went and found it with a helicopter and it was, yeah, tied onto this pop bottle. But um, to live that long is very rare. But when you do and you can learn how to survive those cubs and rear cubs, like she produced many, many litters. Whereas, you know, a female that, you know, lives to 12 or something and then gets hit by a car or something like that, then you only get to produce a couple yeah. Cub sort of thing, but yeah. these long-lived females, they can produce like a dozen litters potentially, and those litters um, could be anywhere between one to three cubs. So the the standing population could be like many of them could be descendants of one female. Yeah, in in a, in a in a big geographic oh, yeah. area. Yeah. yeah, and you yeah. find that I mean it's even more disproportionate for males. Um, even like in Banff, they always talk about the famous bears, the boss. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah. he's sired, like I, I can't even remember the number, but an unbelievable percent of that population. So if you can sort of grow old and learn how to live on a landscape, you, from an individual perspective, your fitness can be quite high. Yes. But um, it's not always that way. To have high fitness means that everybody else is not doing as well as you. So. <laughs> When, yeah. when, when the good, when the good berry patches are, are limited. So what was some of the, I read some papers a while back that sort of talked about the, what, what an adult bear needed in the summertime when they're feeding on huckleberries oh, yeah. for, there was maintenance and, and, um, and then actually weight gain. And, and I don't know why they did this, but it was, it was done in the numbers of berries. So it was like yes. a bear had to like consume like a hundred thousand berries a day it's something ridiculous in, in like order that. just to maintain. Yes. And then, and then like getting up into like the one seventy thousand or, you know, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers that we can look them up, um, in order to be gaining weight, weight yeah. for the fall. I recall so. it was something not too far from like a five gallon pail in a day. And you think about like picking like if you get a, a milk uh, or a um ice cream bucket full of huckleberries like that's a pretty good day yeah what, an ice cream is is that a liter yeah four liters four liters four liters yeah a gallon yeah yep. so yeah so you'd have to get five of those in a day 
every day. <laughs> and oh, that's one of those big oil pails. Yeah, yeah, Jeez. yeah, exactly. So that's that's a lot. And so their their lips are incredibly dexterous. So fingers. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they can just go wild. Um, there's been some neat research uh, looking at their ability to um, basically gather food as the food um, increased on the landscape. And uh, the main take home that I remembered was that they kept basically adding density of berries. This was an experiment. These were bears um, they're in Charlie Robbins lab in the States. And he does like these really high quality um, feeding trials. I mean, learned almost everything we know about bear nutrition from that lab or a lot of what we know. And they were adding um, dent, like stem density and berry density. And the bears were sort of obviously increasing their intake. But then after some point, it sort of leveled off because you can only take in so much, obviously, you get saturated. But then when they really drove it over, like just, you know, added 10 times what you would need, the animals sort of like couldn't handle it sort of thing. And they started stripping and they were eating so many leaves. Like, so instead of grabbing every individual berry, they would just sort of grab onto one end and just strip. And they would end up with so much leaf matter. They were were actually getting less food because they just like, there was so much food, they thought they would just start stripping. And it was actually less optimal than grabbing each individual one. And so that situation would actually rarely happen to them in the wild. There wouldn't be that much food, but it was just sort of funny thinking of these bears just like going crazy on these stems and not even getting as much food as if they just like calm down, <laughs> ate a couple <laughs> berries individually, you know, <laughs> and just and move on. Yeah, I, I know I've I found a good huckleberry patch, and then I was like, oh, I'll come back here, you know, the next day or Saturday when I have a day off, and you go in there, and it's like they've just high graded over oh, yeah. top of everything, and then all you're left with are those ones that you have to yeah kind of like under the leaves. underneath the <laughs> yeah. leaves. Yeah. to get at so it's like lay on the ground and look up <laughs> so so their their ability to reproduce is is a big uh concern for conservation because um if there's other pressures that are leading to um high levels of mortality there they can't keep up with that so then obviously yeah. um then a, a population would start to decline because they just can't they can't keep up with with it yeah. um so what what are some other i mean these bears are using huge areas of the landscape so um obviously the quality of that that habitat is is super key to yeah yeah so i mean in the flathead um again a lot of the what we know about uh grizzly bear populations has come from the flathead the study started in 1978 by bruce mcclellan um and you know as you guys both know but the viewers the flathead is due south of here it's sort of in the corner of British Columbia, the southeast corner between Alberta and uh, the United States, uh, Montana. It's right in the crown of the continent ecosystem. Yep. And um, so that we, a lot of what we know about sort of what natural bear populations do has come from the flathead. It's the longest running uh, demographic study of bears in Canada and one of the longest in the world. And so the flathead study has sort of told us that um, the interannual variation in huckleberry productivity because it changes quite a bit um, year to year. There'll be a really good crop, a really poor crop, and the interannual variation also drives the amount of um, cubs that female can produce. And that kind of goes back to that percent body fat story that I told you about that if they can't acquire enough fat, they will not produce cubs because the strategy of a long-lived animal is to always choose yourself. Like, you will always continue living and your cubs are sort of second nature because there's, or sort of second option because there's always next year. So if you uh, need that fat to survive, you will always choose to survive and produce cubs the next year. 
uh, instead of doing it that current year. So if they have a poor bear year, they don't get enough fat, they'll just go into the den. Um, the cubs, the embryos, the, the so bears, grizzly bears have delayed implantation. So they made in the fall, but the um, embryos have not implanted into the uterine lining, um, even in the fall. So it kind of, they're sitting there and then they implant when they're in the den or early, uh, or sorry, late in the fall, and then they produce those cubs in the den. So it kind of just hangs there in limbo um, until they can acquire enough fat and then into the den and away they go. So if she's not not gone into the, the, the den in good good fitness, then there's just a good chance they won't implant. They won't implant, okay. yeah. Or if they have implanted, they just won't continue. Yeah, because yep. yeah, there's always next year. So, so, so when things are impacting their habitat on the landscape, either, you know, too much development or, or impacting their ability to move to high quality foraging areas, or even the absence of disturbance on the landscape that's creating, you know, healthy huckleberry crops and those berry crops, those, those are going to have big, big impacts on a population potentially. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bears, pretty well, you can describe everything they do by food. Like that's all that they, their whole life is driven by food because they, they only have about six months to make it work. And they spend like four to six months in the den and they do not eat. So that's, I mean, that's an incredible burden to, to carry as an individual. So their whole life, every second is about food. Um, it's about food and surviving, but, um, they will often risk their survival for food, for food, which is why you have them down in the valley and why they are, why they are the way they are, because they need to get that fat. They're strongly driven for that. You know, you don't have, we don't have very many cougars in town, or we don't like, and it happens obviously, but we don't have very many wolves or cougars or things like that in town. But we always have bears in town, um, and it's partly just do with the way they evolve, but also just they are strongly food motivated. They they don't have um, December and January and February and March and all those things to just sort of keep picking away at, you know, the the carcass that's left. They are in a hole with no food. (laughs) So there's that term hyperphagia, which is that fall fall, late, late summer where their quest for food, basically they become like even more obsessed, more <laughs> more frenzied, right? Yes, so, yeah. so that's uh, of course usually in the fall when hunting season happens, and you get the and when most of our conflict happens. Like even you know, it's it's sort of a double-edged sword. Like you have in the fall, the landscape becomes saturated with people, you know, hunting and well, probably mostly hunting because fishing sort of happens all summer long, and people are biking all summer long. So it's really the change is, is hunting across the landscape, and yeah, so people start to saturate the landscape. And the bears are moving more. They're more active during the day because they're trying to feed longer. Um, and but we also have more conflict right in town. Like those bears just start looking for food, and they will. They're highly food motivated by that in that wow. period. Yeah. Now you've done some work on um, um, like road density, so so sort of the network of roads on the landscape and how that influences how grizzly bears are using habitat, even prime habitat. So maybe. Yeah. So I mean, that's sort of the. Um, uh, the risk and reward type trade-off that these animals are having to make. Like they are always looking to sequester those calories, but they do sometimes have to take a risk to get them. And sort of, so road density then poses this risk piece to that landscape. And in British Columbia, we have, it, the road layers are 
sort of messy at best, but there's somewhere between 750,000 and a million kilometers of road in British Columbia. That's including um, paved roads, highways, and then all of the resource roads that we have across the province, the gravel roads. And that is it like that would approximately wrap around the earth like 35 times if you straighten that out in a line. So just to give a scale of what that actually looks like. Um, so a huge proportion of the province is roaded. Um, at least if you account for the buffer that a road has an impact, like the actual square kilometers of or square area of road the province has is kind of low, but the roads have a impact much further than just their surface. Right, because you could be you could be an animal standing beside a road, and a vehicle comes along and it could scare you or it could slam on its brakes and Correct. look at you and you get freaked out by that. So it's it's yeah. having this kind of yeah, there's edge impact. The estimate is somewhere between like fifteen hundred meters and five hundred meters is sort of the range that a road can have on the sort of larger species like a grizzly bear, like a wolverine or or an elk or something like that. Right. So it's it's on the order of hundreds of meters up to a kilometer and a half. Sort wow. Of yeah. So it can be quite large. And so our research around road density was in the Granby um, grizzly bear population unit, which is in um, the east side of the Okanagan Valley, uh, which is kind of an interesting spot to work on bears, which is a lot different than here because it's a recovering grizzly bear population. It's uh, listed as threatened in the province. Um, and it's right on the range margin. So there was grizzly bears in the Okanagan Valley, uh, but now they're extirpated. And we kind of worked right on the range margin where um, the West Kootenays and the Okanagan sort of meet. And there are bears there, but they are quite low densities, or they, they were thought to be. So we went in there and did a DNA marker capture study in there, the same kind of hair snagging, and basically asked two questions. How has the population density changed since 1997, which was when um, the first inventory was done there. And then how are the animals distributed across the landscape? So um, there's a lot of worry in that area about logging and the effects of road density and that kind of disturbance on the bear population. And it was quite a neat study because there's always a strange, I guess it's really a confound or more of just a historical context of how carnivore populations have changed over the last 30 or 40 years because they can often be increasing um, but still facing substantial landscape threats and that is sort of like counterintuitive to most people yeah and the reason for that is that between sort of the 1850s and the 1950s we, we the, they call it we persecuted but we basically killed a lot of our carnivores across much of North America um, as this place was settled by Europeans um, and farming and all those sort of conflicts and just sort of a different um, uh, a different relationship with carnivores and landscape. They were thought to uh, pose significant human um, risk and risk to the game animals that people were um, pursuing. So especially in the sort of 1940s to 60s, a lot of those animals were shot, poisoned, um, killed for bounty. Grizzly bears were listed as vermin species in British Columbia. I, I don't know until when, but like the sixties or the fifties, or it wasn't, it was right around that time when we started to realize, okay, like one, we've severely depressed these populations and extirpated them from many areas. And the um, social values around having a more holistic view of wildlife started to change. And we started to view them as a game species as opposed to a ver vermin by the, by 70, 
75, 78, they went on to LEH, um, limited entry hunting. A permit permit hunt draw yeah, system. Exactly. And um, uh, yeah, the, the landscape of how we shared um, how we shared the landscape with carnivores started to change and social values towards them started to change. So um, when we went into the Granby, we found that the density of bears had actually increased, which was not surprising to us given that, you know, that we've seen bear populations and many carnivore populations increase across much of North America as a result of the changing um, attitudes towards them. Um, and biologically, we think of carrying capacity, like basically that landscape was well below carrying capacity. It could have held, you know, in 1997, it could have held double the grizzly bears, but they were heavily reduced. They're much below carrying capacity. So really the increase isn't that um, the landscape is being overrun by these animals. It's just they're bouncing back to what the landscape is actually sort of calorically um, uh, available or what's substantial for them to um, to eat. Now. Yeah, the, the bears are finding that optimum balance between X amount of food on in that area can yeah. support Y totally. number of bears. So And risk. Like the undoubtedly there's very few spots in North America that um don't have a carrying capacity that's eroded, that's not eroded by humans. Like the land the food based carrying capacity is almost always higher than the density of animals there because there's some sort of top down human limitation. Um so yeah, we went into the Granby, found that the population had increased. Uh but we also found very, very strong spatial structure. Like these bears weren't just uniformly spread across the landscape. They were very um, uh, sort of localized towards areas that had higher food quality, which is not surprising. That's sort of, you would, if that didn't come out, we would be concerned. Um, but very low road densities. So they were kind of in these areas that um, had fewer roads. And we had a, we had a unique opportunity there because we, there's access management areas in the Granby. And that means that um, there's still roads and people are still on them, but at much uh, lower frequency than just a normal road. Cause the public is not allowed in access management areas. Only really um, timber extraction is allowed in there. And during the period of study, it, so they're it was not, very low. They're impact. not allowed in the areas by using motor vehicles oh, correct. or, yes. or they they can use motor vehicles, but maybe only for, certain period of the year so sorry that's fair. Yes. yeah so so access um recreational access is being curtailed or limited in motorized for different ways motorized yeah yep. yeah so you can hike up that road you can take your horse up the road your bike up the road that's no problem um and so these areas are basically logged heavily eroded and then put under access management because they're actually right on the al edge of the alpine and so it gave us a unique opportunity to also ask the question is it really roads that are the problem because we had these areas with um high roads, good habitat, um, and they were open to the public, open to motorized access and had, you know, many people in them. And then we had the same kind of areas and the same road density, but hardly any people. So these were in behind these access management areas. So there was obviously the odd person in there, but drastically lower human um, impact, physical, like people actually there. And we could see that the grizzly bear density was about 27% higher in those areas under access management. So it kind of helped us get towards a mechanism that, um, Yes, roads do erode grizzly bear density, um, but it's largely due to the impact of the people on those roads. Using the roads, yeah. yeah. And I mean, to be fair, we we do a lot of science of the obvious. Like we do <laughs> things that aren't necessarily particularly shocking to people, but we provide rigorous evidence for people to take what they're seeing on the landscape and turn it into science. 
and that information can then be taken by landscape managers to make evidence-based change. Yeah. So, you know, these things are potentially not very surprising, but now they're evidence-based and they're in peer-reviewed literature and we can manage the landscape with evidence. Yeah, and it's definitely uh, this, is, this is a topic I'd, li- I'd like to get into it, you know, in a little bit. Is it's just how how sensitive people are right now to, you know, sort of. Well, we've been telling you that for yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> about twenty years, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a lot so, of places to generate hypotheses for sure. I mean, the the whole road density discussion is is you know it it the access management is is a controversial you know subject you know and you know, this part of the problems. Cause you know, in Southeastern British Columbia from, I, I had heard once that we have more area of the land base, uh, under access management, um, than the entire rest of British Columbia put together. It's just, it's been a tool that's been used here in Southeastern BC, uh, and the Kootenays more than, than any, anywhere else. Um, it could be just a management philosophy or it could actually be, you know, driven by our landscape and our, and our species and stuff here. But, you know, so it's, People want access to the backcountry. Um, it's easy to get back there, you know, in your quads, your vehicles, um, you know. But there are these, these, these impacts to you know species like like grizzly bears when these areas are, are, are heavily traveled. And then people see a community like what you you guys live in here in Fernie, and it's like you got these bears like, like right in town, and there's like roads everywhere and traffic, and it's hard for people to kind of put. Yeah. Those two things together, like you're, you're telling me like high road density is bad for grizzly bears, yet they're all living in town and not in the back country. And I mean, how do you, how do you reconcile that, that viewpoint? Well, the same, you get in the same issue with like, uh, even driving down a logging road, like you almost always see a bear track sometime around here when you drive around or a, a bear scat sort of thing. So yeah, I think that, um, it's really about the question that you ask, like at the population level, roads produce roads and the people on them that sort of human impact and the access reduce grizzly bear density. There are fewer bears per square kilometer than areas with low roads, but that doesn't mean that individuals can't sort of make it work. Some individuals can figure it out, but at a population level, there are fewer grizzly bears where there's high road density. Um, but, Undoubtedly, in a landscape that has roads, these animals have to move on them. They have to cross them. They will walk down them in the middle of the night. Um, they'll walk down them in the middle of the day, too. You know, everybody's seen a bear on the side of a logging road at some point if you've driven enough of them. But I think it, when you start getting into the data, you'll notice that like they're definitely not walking down them at the same rate um, between day and night, which instantly makes you see that there's they're, they're um, responding to that risk. You know, so if... If it was 50-50 and they showed no sort of nocturnal behavior, then you would think that truly even to these individuals, these roads don't matter. Like they'll just go down in the middle of the day, but that is not true. They will avoid those roads as much as they can during the day um, and then travel them at night. But, you know, the there's always flex in the system. They will go down at noon sometimes, but that's not sort of a population level phenomena. Um, and I think so those are the things that you, is are hard to reconcile, sort of the individual um one-offs versus the like how what drives a population and i think that myself and i i think most hunters are generally interested in the population um they want to know you know how many animals per square kilometer what's the what's the general trend here not the sort of one-off type thing um 
yeah, like, I mean, you could, uh, you could call an elk in with a coyote call if you try hard enough, you know, but like, that's probably not a population level phenomena, yeah. you know? So yeah. is, this, is this one individual elk yeah. was, was, was curious or something? Yeah, yeah exactly. no, no, I get, I get it. And, and when it comes to conservation, um, looking at these things at a landscape scale over a long period of time at a population level is, is, um, e- even if you are studying, you know, something at a very small scale, uh, that, that is feeding into kind of this overall ethos, which is we're looking at sort of these big free roaming animals on a landscape scale over the long period of time. And yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, another thing, even though we're focusing on grizzly bears here, it's, uh, a lot of these relationships, um, are very general across wildlife, like the road density and um, sort of declines in population density relationships are incredibly general. Um, elk are very strong avoiders of road density. Um, mule deer, uh, bull trout populations decline in high road densities because of sedimentation. Um, uh, amphibians, all kinds of different animals have road density relationships. Um, Broadly, they're not always, so for those animals, they're negative. There's some animals that can make a good living when roads come in. Like nothing is ever, few things are always negative to every yeah. species, but for the sort of bigger charismatic megafauna that we're interested in, roads almost always have a negative uh, relationship with their density and their space use yeah. of that landscape. And once those roads become paved and the more yeah. traffic, then they're being directly impacted. Correct. Literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. So I think that when we um, think about access management in the Elk Valley, um, there are there are a lot of benefits to wildlife. I mean, if if you think about where people are still harvesting the largest and most productive sheep populations in our valley, um, where the remaining six points tend to live. Um, well, first of all, a lot of them tend to live on the mine where there's no hunting at all. Um, and good food. Yeah. Uh, a re- refuge, a refuge, sanctuaries yeah. almost. Yeah. Which does also kind of, it, I wouldn't say put a wrench in it, but it does for us, it makes you think it, it's not also just a human impact problem. Like it's also a risk problem because I mean, there's not too far from those animals. There's rock trucks going by and all those sort of things. And there's people there, but those animals are truly at no risk of dying from humans, but they are, they're six points walking all around. They're looking down on rock trucks Yeah. and you know, they step out and they're at quite a large risk of harvest. Um, so just like hunters and scientists are just looking at the landscape and kind of thinking, well, that's funny. Like, how does that work? And what's really driving this? Cause we have people there and a lot of good food. And so what's the mechanism And it? It does largely come down to risk. So I think that if, um, if the animals can get the sense that they actually have no risk, then humans and wildlife can actually coexist quite well in very close proximity. But it's very hard to imagine a situation where a grizzly bear in this, say, right outside here is not at risk. Even though there's grass there, there's a highway right there. Um, if that animal came anywhere near us right now, it would, you know, or somebody else, it would be uh, at risk to us. So we would then have to pose a risk to it. Yeah. So, um, those sort of mindsets are a unique situation where they, those animals sort of coexist, um, but face very little risk. Yeah. So the access management is not so dissimilar from that, that it just reduces the, um, human access into there, not eliminating it in any way. You can walk your, walk yourself in there. You can take your horse, but the, 
the density of humans is a lot lower in those areas. And um, in general, the humans that are accessing those areas pose a risk to wildlife because we're harvesting them for food and for our families and things like that. Typically hunters. Yeah. Yes, and, yes. Um, but from the individual animal, obviously that's not great. So you space away and you try to figure that out. So the lower human impact in those areas does actually produce a higher density of animals and they um, are more active during the day. You see more animals um, and they actually live at higher densities in there. And they, you know, you actually have higher age classes. You have more six points. You have more full curl rams, all those things. Because they're just, they're actually, they're harvested at a lower rate. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that's where I believe, like, where, you know, a lot of science that's, you know, going on and different populations being studied at different scales and, and looking at these these things, how road density and the human use, uh, you know, affects, you know, the populations is, is key for making management decisions because you're going to find these particular areas on the landscape where they're of incredible importance to a particular species or a grizzly bear. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you might be finding, um, that the access to that area at a certain time of the year is, is much of a problem. So when you have the evidence to kind of show, this activity is causing this response, this response could be negative, you know, over the long term to a population, then you do have managers then have the ability to use things like access management areas, restrict, restrict access uh, to areas. And science is a critical, critical part of delivering the evidence. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's, it's comforting, like to make a decision, have something that's rigorous and objective behind that. It's, it allows me to proceed with like at least something backing you, you know, and evidence-based management is very important to the landscape. And I think so is um, sort of having variation on that landscape too, because I think groups are always worried about landscape going one way too far. Like some folks are worried about it becoming far too um, ruined per se, like completely logged, completely, uh, no wilderness, but other groups are worried about it becoming too preserved, like too a uh, national park or even just too much access management. And they enjoy nobody's it. nobody's allowed in there. Keep right. everybody exactly. out. <laughs> yeah, that kind of preservationist feel. And I think that having a landscape like we have here that does have some industrial development, um, has cities, but some areas that we can lock away and say, like, okay, this is an access management area, and like this has reduced human use, or this is a provincial park, so we won't log in there, but people can go in there. And then some areas that are heavily eroded. So you can still enjoy riding your quad with your family and going to a viewpoint and, and enjoying the Elk Valley. Um, and that can just be a Sunday driver. It could be that you don't have um, the capacity to access some of these areas. Like you might not have horses or you might not be physically able. So I think having a diverse landscape is important too. And um, the, the way in which you create that landscape, I would argue should be driven by science and, what it, and a, objective goals. Like if you want a density of elk at this level, science can help tell you what sort of landscapes would create that. You know, how much um, industrial footprint, how much access management would you need? How, what's the level of road density that will allow for that? Or at what tipping point will you be um, adding more roads and eroding what you actually wanted was elk or something yep. like that. Yep. So carrying capacity of the yeah. area, can so, they actually support that target number of animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's largely something that we lack in British Columbia is the um, the objectives. We don't really have strong objectives for a lot of species or we don't, there's no way to hold um, the landscape to that. Like 
Um, if it goes below, it just sort of goes below the objective. So science is a tool to allow us to um, create landscapes with evidence that um, could meet those objectives. Definitely, yeah. So let's, uh, we've been talk- talking about the valley, you know, here, let's, let's kind of paint the picture um, for people, the Elk Valley where you live and, and work. Um, paint the picture a little bit of what's going on in this valley, what it is, and, and then let's, um, let's kind of dive into like your thesis work because it's really fascinating what's that what's going on here and so yeah so I the mean, valley I, elk valley the elk valley of british columbia studying I, um, grizzly bears in the elk valley <laughs> anybody yeah. studying elk in the elk valley <laughs> I, there's a lot of people ask that question <laughs> i know exactly. yeah well they are we've got colored elk here too um with the sparrow fishing game club there's some colored elk. Um, it's been going on for a few years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good study, good partnership between academics and government and um, the hunting clubs. Um, but back to bears. I, I, we think that the Elk Valley might be one of the most exciting places to study grizzly bears in North America, because, uh, well, one because that's what I have to say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, because it. It's sort of one of those areas that has incredibly rich food resources. Like it's it's good habitat for bears. Like a lot of spots that we study grizzly bears is in what we would consider like crappy habitat. It's they're threatened populations, and there's like a reason we have to go in there and essentially like prop up this population with evidence. Like these things are going to go to zero if we don't get in there. But the chance of that happening here in the foreseeable future like say 40 years is quite low like we have quite abundant populations of bears it's not it's non-zero like it could happen but we have quite high densities of bears here so this is a unique place because of that there's a lot of bears there's good habitat but the human influence and the human pressure on this landscape is huge like one of the highest in the province um and it's unique again because it it harbors so many different species as well still there are bighorn sheep there's rocky mountain goats there's elk there's wolverine there's mule deer there's whitetail there's elk or i already said elk moose no all the critters like when you think of the cougars lynx cougars bobcats yeah we don't have buffalo and like bison and we used to have you said we used to have caribou in the flathead uh yes yeah. Um, places in Montana, just, just south of the border had documented caribou and I found a caribou bull antler, uh, yeah. in the Flathead Valley one time. No way. Uh, yeah. That's that one that's, that's in my office. Oh, so yeah. that's where it came from. So, so and, and I even understand from an archeologist that there were bison here and they traveled oh. out through the Crow's Nest Pass. Yes. Um, and through this valley and we're going into the Rocky Mountain Trench on the other side no of the way. mountains here because they had actually found evidence uh, at Sparwood where that trailer park is just yeah. by the Michelle Creek crossing of uh, bison bones and stuff there that may have in fact actually been a small version of the buffalo jump Whoa. that was at head smashed in. So That's amazing. Um, and it had apparently had both species of the original big steps bison that okay. migrated across the Bering Land Bridge and the evolution of the Plains bison they had found. So okay. at one point, yeah, we, we, could have, we could have added added bison to it as well. So Yeah, so when you think of that diversity of large mammals and even, you know, small mesocarnivores or carnivores like um, wolverine, there's very few places on in British Columbia that have that many different species. Um, 
and I, I struggle to think of very many that have this level of human impact. And the human impact largely comes in the form of three or four towns. We probably have about maybe 20,000 people in the valley approximately. Fernie has about five, and then we have Sparwood, Elkford, a few people in the pass, which isn't really Elk Valley, but uh, Elko, Jaffrey, so five or six towns. Um, and we're looking out the window at a ski hill. We have seven lifts in a ski hill. And then we have a lot of resource extraction in the valley. Um, so we have five major coal mines. Um, they're metallurgical coal. So that's the coal that is used um, in steel making. It's really high quality coal. It's not thermal coal that's used to burn. It's used to make steel. Um, so it's very high quality coal and it's found in relatively few places. So the Elk Valley is sort of a hub of that coal. And I, um, I have heard and I... Well, I guess I will be quoted on this, but I can't confirm <laughs> the validity <laughs> of these facts that I had heard that um, the coal mines in this valley create about 5% of the province's GDP. Um, and I think logging at a much larger scale across the province creates something not too dissimilar from that. Yeah, I, I had read some statistics at a national level that these five coal mines here accounted for, I think, a, about a quarter of 1% of the GDP of Canada, the yeah. entire nation. Doesn't sure. be a quarter of a percent. That's pretty massive That's for, huge. For, well, for, especially, for five mines. Yeah. Yeah. And if you like if you took the percent of the area compared to Canada, like it would be, you know, like point zero 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 one percent of the area. So, you know, there's a lot of money and interest in that coal and a lot of development on the landscape. I mean, um, those coal mines have expanded drastically in the last 30, 40 years, um, and they're, they have planned expansions still ongoing. Almost every mine has a uh, expansion proposed, and there's at least two new companies that are exploring uh, new mines in the valley. Uh, so there's a lot of, actually three, yeah, I can think of three different companies. Um, so there's a lot of interest in the metallurgical coal in this valley, and it has been developed a lot. Um, and then timber extraction is another major one, uh, and it I th it feels like in the last decade or so that um, cut, the annual cut has increased drastically also in this valley. So the landscape is changing um, quite a bit. And I think that that's sort of what makes it quite an exciting place to work on bears. And um, during the summer, we have here in Fernie, we have quite a vibrant tourism industry here. So we have a lot of people that come to the town. They're recreating in all directions from the town. We have uh, hundreds of mountain bike trails in every direction here. And so I've colored grizzly bears that wander through those trails during the night. And we kind of have this landscape that is uh, heavily influenced and used by people that still has large carnivores in it. We have cougars and grizzly in close, bears. In close proximity. Very close proximity. Like um, it's almost interesting how few grizzly bears people see. Like there's, there's always sign of bears. Like there's um, people are seeing grizzly bear scat tracks everywhere, but not many people actually see grizzly bears in this valley. I know, um, I know people that have lived in this valley their entire life and have never seen a grizzly bear. And you know, those aren't necessarily people that are out hunting and glassing avalanche shoots. But you would just think that driving down the highway, you would see a grizzly bear. But it's not like Banff. Like there aren't like you know, you guys lived here. There's like how many grizzly bears have you seen on the side of the highway? Like not that many. Like I'm sure you've seen some, maybe, but. I don't actually think I've ever seen any grizzly bear on the highway. Right. Like, 
Whereas I, I did right over, right over here, there's a side road comes out and I was going by it at five o'clock in the morning one year and right on the edge of my headlights, all of a sudden on the dead run, there's this grizzly bear coming out of a side road, wanting to cross the highway and freaked the hell out of me. And I kind of did the slam on the brake swerve thing. And he did this maneuver where he just basically like tucked his head underneath and his butt came up over top and Sonic he did a hedgehog. roll and and just literally like if he'd kept straight line and I, I would hit him yeah but he actually did this commando roll <laughs> and then he was 180 degrees headed in the opposite direction that was just right over here yeah yeah so, so it, that's well, the only one i've seen yeah on the road and then you here. guys lived here for 30 years or more so whereas like the average person can just drive from one day through banff and see a grizzly bear like very few people have not gone to a national park in Canada not seen a bear. <laughs> so it's a much different landscape in that way. They um, These animals are here and using the landscape, but that sort of adapt or die landscape does create a group of animals that are more nocturnal um, and just sort of use little remnant patches of timber to figure it out. So it it's both a landscape of pretty intense conflict at times. We have... Um, a number of very serious maulings here over the last decade. Um, no fatalities, but you know these are people that are in hospital for three months or very serious maulings. Um, the risk to individuals is still incredibly low. We have tens of thousands of people out recreating. Like undoubtedly, everybody driving past here on this highway is at more risk than somebody out recreating. But there is there is still uh, a non-zero risk of grizzly bears in this valley. Um, but we have this landscape of conflict and then coexistence because those bears are undoubtedly spacing and temporarily spacing away from people. Like there is no desire to bump into somebody out there hunting or um, on their mountain bike or anything like that. It almost always ends up poorer for the bear than it does for the human. So um, the bears here, they are here. They are here in relatively like medium densities, but uh, they're sort of sneaky. They 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 avoid as much as possible. Yeah. Well, they're, they're they're trying their best to coexist or behave, right? So mm-hmm. so so what uh, in your thesis research? What is your what is your specific you're you're focusing on? So my thesis at the biggest scale asks how do grizzly bears persist in multi-use landscapes? Okay, um, and that is all the way from and multi. And it's really across a gradient of multi-use. So all the way from complete wilderness, like the Moscow Kachika or something that, you know, has very little human footprint, all the way to right in downtown Fernie. Um, and we've darted bears in Fernie, like in on pavement, right in somebody's yard type thing. Like these bears are right with people at times. It's rare, but the gradient of landscape that those bears use is huge, like the human influence landscape. So my thesis sort of, has broken that down into a number of different pieces, like the road density piece that I explained to you. Um, But sort of a big take home that's come out of my thesis has been about how these areas, these sort of valley bottoms that have a lot of people, um, how grizzly bears persist numerically there. Like how do we have a, a low to medium density of bears here when it doesn't seem like they could potentially replace themselves so that replacement i was talking about where you have to live for seven years and then produce a cubs and you're 10 by the time that succeeds that's quite rare and there's definitely if you crunch the numbers 
it's almost impossible for, you know, if you drop 20 bears here and then put a fence around it so nobody else could come in from the backcountry, like no other bears, those bears would go to zero. They would not be able to live those full 10 years and all replace themselves. They might have a couple generations, but through long enough time, they would go to zero. They are not able to replace themselves on site. So, so they're being run over on the highway, hit by a train totally. or, or yeah. shot. Yeah. And so, um, south of, you know, uh, like 58 degrees or any sort of the more human influenced areas of Canada and, um, the United States where grizzly bears live upwards of 75 to 90% of grizzly bear mortalities, um, are human caused. So almost no grizzly bear, if you call it a bear and followed it through its life, it's will almost never die naturally. Um, and it doesn't mean that they don't get really old and are about to die naturally and then are starving. So go into town. So we end up shooting them. So like that's sort of a, there's a compound that they were um, sort of naturally going down and about to die, but then we shot them. Um, but all, these animals rarely die naturally. So your end fate is almost always a human. Um, it just depends how that happens and when it happens. Does it happen when you're four before you can reproduce or does it happen when you're like 32 and then you get tied onto a pop bottle? You know, like, <laughs> and, and that matters a lot because if you can live to 32 and then lose all your teeth and then you end up in conflict in a hunting camp or whatever it is, that's very different for the bear population because that animal produced a pile of cubs and she was going to die one way or the other, basically. She, she was walking dead. She was a zombie. Um, and we see that scenario a lot, like even with uh, predation of natural animals, like we see heavily food-stressed um, moose and elk or something like that that gets killed by wolves. And it's like, well, you have this compound that these things were already dead, basically, on their feet, and they just end up... What stops your heart from beating can be different from what you know predisposed you to dying. Um, so that being said, very unlikely that animals could sustain themselves um, here by just reproducing and living. So yet you look around British Columbia and we have a lot of grizzly bears in areas that have some degree of human influence, like many valleys, all through the Kootenays, every, every valley in the Kootenays has a grizzly bear. The, the population's either growing or staying stable Correct. in these areas yes. that yeah. are subject to high human mortality. So yeah. what's and going so on? The, what props that up is largely immigration from the back country. So we call it source sink dynamics, um, but it's basically, uh, it's a, it's a leveling of that mortality field across space. Basically, there's very few, um, there's more animals being produced in the backcountry than uh, would survive if they all stayed there because they're sort of at carrying capacity, you could imagine. And young bears disperse out when they're two or three years old and they don't disperse out in any sort of um, directional fashion. They just wander out and try to find a home that's not by mom so they can breed with new females and live in a new place. And some of them inevitably end up down here in the Elk Valley or in any sort of human-dominated zone. And um, because of that high mortality, there's basically vacancies in this in these sort of areas. There are fewer animals than the landscape can sustain um, calorically. And so they stay down here. And that is basically the dynamic that props up. So uh, there's not enough cubs being produced here on site to keep it going. But there's these animals from these more remote, um, more secure backcountry areas dispersing in and living in here that keep the population going. So it's a bit of a black hole. Yes. They're, they're, get, they're getting sucked in and then they ne they never leave. Correct. They never disperse back to the wild areas. No. Okay. No. And it's it's quite appealing 
to be here too because as a young animal there's a number of reasons that you can't settle somewhere and that also includes the social factors that are pushed upon you from your conspecifics from from other grizzly bears so even if you find a good huckleberry patch and you're two and a half years old a big male or even a dominant female will just bump you from that so you come down here and even though you have to assume quite a high amount of risk one you might not be able to perceive that risk very well like grizzly bears in the flathead have never seen a highway so that risk is not you don't really know what that means for one um and two there's just immediately you can start feeding and living and there's just not that many other bears down here so you just that's a trade-off and the trade-off is that they accept the risk and take the food and there's all kinds of food down here so um well you guys know about the spawning kokanee and jaffrey um so that uh is a huge reason for bears in the other side of these mountains to be down near people um so so that's kind of an interesting story because these landlocked salmon, the kokanee, were accidentally released into the Kootenai River, Kukanusa Reservoir, <clears throat> and established a population there that are river-run salmon. Yeah, they're they're small, but in late August or mid-August, they run up all of these little tributary streams, right, right, you know, close to where I live, and these bears have become habituated to it, just like in Alaska, and they get drawn into those areas they wait at the mouth of the streams for the for the rivers to start but there's farm operations in the valley bottom they've got to cross a set of railroad tracks and a highway and sneak their way through communities to get get to well, these fish those so fish are spawning like right in people's backyards like <laughs> you know that'll be like a almost a subdivision and backing onto this stream and there's bears using it not during the day or yeah. anything but so that's, that's one so there's yeah. uh, there's fish so there's fish there's just generally still decent habitat around here. There's, you know, um, good avalanche shoots and things like that, natural food, berries and things like that, uh, huckleberry and buffalo berry. Which um, grow right on the ski hill in the summertime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tons of huckleberries <laughs> all over the ski hill and then buffalo berry in the valley bottom. And a lot of the valley bottom is cleared as well, so that increases production. Um, Human-type food like garbage and things like that, your classic bear attractant. Um, but then another one is... Uh, carcasses so those kind of come from a variety of sources the the biggest most predictable one is these roadkill pits so where um animals are hit on the highway british columbia the ministry of transport has a contractor that picks those carcasses up so gets them out of the public eye and cleans up the highway and then drops them in a centralized location um but those locations to date have been unregulated unfenced they're just open pits and so the bears are going in there and feed on those carcasses. And so we'll have upwards of, you know, six, seven individuals using this one carcass pit uh, in a couple of days. And you think of, um, you know, you think a Big Mac has like a thousand calories in it. Like imagine how many calories an entire elk has in it. And when you're in that hyperphagia, hangry, kind of stressed out about food phase, an elk is an unbelievable, like that one animal could get you through the whole winter. Like there's an amazing amount of fat and body mass to be sequentered there. Make, make the difference whether a female make implants or not. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, it's huge. Um, so that's a major attraction. And we have collared animals that their whole life is structured around that pit. Like you almost couldn't do an analysis on it without including the pit because everything that they do like even the way they cross the highway where they go to bed every decision they're making is really just in relation 
to that pit. Yeah. So, um, so when we say pit, just, just so people can imagine this, like we're not sort of talking like a hole in the ground, like a landfill, these things aren't being buried. No. They're typically just like a road, little gravel road that goes off the highway. We call them pits because sometimes gravel pit. Yeah. yeah, They used to be an old gravel pit that was reclaimed and, you know, and it's, and it's flat. So these carcasses that you're talking about are literally just sort of moved a few hundred yards off the side of the highway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Predictably moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're always in the same spot, um, and unfortunately, the place that they have been dumped for the last while is right uh, by the side of the highway, within about 250 meters of a highway rest area with washrooms and picnic tables, and right in the main uh, boat launch for the fishermen in the valley. Uh, yeah, where, where you guys put your boats in up there yeah. by the Olson, and just on the other side of the trees, there's one of these places <laughs> where. <laughs> yeah, no, we uh, we were putting the boat in there last summer, and there's a couple guys on like touring mountain bikes came zipping down the road, and they're like, "Oh, is this is a good spot to uh, set a tent up." And one of the guys I work with is like, "Oh yeah, you know, you're right by the river." I'm like, "Yeah, except for the." Kill dump spot right yeah. over there. You probably have grizzly bears coming in all night. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe we'll go somewhere else. Would not recommend. <laughs> yeah, so that is not quite a... And I mean, there's upwards of 13 vehicles there. Like that whole road is... And those people are parking within 80, 60 meters of this carcass pit. And the bears, they're literally just in the bush within 200 meters. Like they're just sleeping there. Um, it's amazing that nobody has been harmed, luckily. Um they're just full and happy, but it wouldn't, you know, it's one walk with your dog or go pee on some tree. And it's like, we're just one wrong step. Whoops. We're in a bad situation. So I think there's a responsibility. I mean, the bears are here and, um, you know, it's the onus is largely on us, even though they have the capacity to sort of figure out how to live here. We do sort of put them in a tough situation at times. Like, you know, that's one of the situations that we can remedy that. We could do something about that. It's like uh, we have evidence it's a problem. And that's just an easy human safety issue that we can solve with evidence because I don't think that anybody wants to see that stay there. Like that, um, there's no group that wants to advocate for the continued feeding of bears near people sort of thing. Like it's not, it's an easy win. Yeah. So those are the kind of things where we can start making some gains. Um, and yeah, those are the main attractants. And that's one of the issues, I guess, is that there's sort of a multifaceted problem. It's not just one attractant. Um, and the, on the carcass side, the, the road kill is largely the easiest to solve because it's, you know, it's a provincial ministry. It's a localized um, group that's in charge of that. And we're working with them to solve that. And it's a really collaborative, positive type relationship. Whereas there's other sources of meat. So there's ranchers um, that have dead stock. And those can get dumped um, right on their property or just, you know, down a forest service road. So then the, the meat is then distributed across the landscape. And then also uh, the source of it is distributed across all the ranchers. So it's very hard to kind of uh, control that source. And another one is actually um, hunter gut piles. So there's, there's a number of elk that are right in the valley bottom from here all the way north of Elkford, you know, like 80, 90 kilometers. And... Um, the, I mean, there's a lot of food in a gut pile and people are hunting elk right in the valley bottom and successfully getting elk. And so you, uh, especially here, there's a lot of people that will hunt on foot. And so uh, these elk are often quartered 
Um, so what's left is uh, quite a bit of food for a, from a bear's perspective, um, entrails and all those sort of things. And when you think of the number of elk that are harvested here across the season, there's actually a number of gut piles that could be harvested yeah. from a bear's perspective. So a little, little harder for them to find those on the landscape because it's random. It's not predictable yes. like like the 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 carcass highway carcass dump sites but what i've noticed last year um just close to well where we were out turkey hunting that in late in november hunting whitetails that the area where you're hunting whitetails late in the year shrinks considerably um than early in the year when you're hunting elk and you got yeah. this whole entire landscape where elk could be um, to these more confined areas that the number of grizzly bears that were in that where we were yeah. wandering up and down the roads um, and they knew exactly because you there you would either find your tracks from the day before going oh we got company here and they follow you or you cut another person's tracks that had walked up and there it's all in an access management area so yeah. we're we're walking kilometers back into this area looking for white-tailed deer and these bears are following these hunters yeah up the roads and off up into the trees onto ridges and stuff and they they know yeah um so that that becomes a dangerous situation or an attractant um because i would suspect from the bear's perspective that is a bit more pre- predictable oh for sure you know? and i mean and even in the elk season these animals, they have an incredible sense of smell. So after a couple of days, that gut pile does have quite a trail of scent on it. And they're not particularly movement limited. Like they can cruise like you wouldn't believe. Like it's not like us. Like, you know, if I walk for 10K a day, I'm kind of tired. You know? <laughs> and like thrashing through bush, it's, you know, I'm tall and lanky and awkward and it doesn't work very well. But like they can cover a pile of ground and that's the strategy. So, and again, it's all relative, like even though their gut piles are kind of hard to find and of course they don't have you know the quarters and the back strap and those kind of things there's still a lot of food and it's all relative to what you could do otherwise and the other options is to like especially in october once all the grass is browned off is to like you know dig roots or eat burnt off grass so to just spend a couple days looking for a gut pile and really you know cash in on that is well worth it for an animal so they just cover ground and if you move enough and use your nose, you know, if you, I can smell like over a kilometer if the wind's right and things like that. So their kind of buffer of walking around is their, their search radius is high. So they can find them and they just cruise. And you actually, I mean, the color data shows that they'll just move up and down the valley. They'll just, they move like crazy during the, um, during the fall. The fall. Yeah. So you're, so you're specifically sort of looking at the interaction, the behavior of these bears on these multi-use landscape you're finding that their mortality rates are quite high and what do you hope that that information is going to do when when you when you wrap that up how how are people gonna so so we we talked about one like the the cooperative work that you're involved in and using your evidence from your caller data to say these are attracting sites, these highway um, roadkill, like that's, that's one of the things. What are some other, other things you think that your evidence can lead to making a difference for bears and people on this landscape? Yeah, I think um, a, a big one is it's all about the levers that uh, we could pull to make changes to a population. And 
those levers, I would uh, insist, have to be evidence-based. Like, um, so if recovering grizzly bears or increasing bear density is a goal, the science that I provide provides that evidence-based lever and options that um, are rigorous. And if uh, you have a mortality problem, um, the information is there to address those problems. And that's really no different than the management of any other species. Then if you want more elk, you know, there's evidence about burning or reducing highway mortality and all those things. But of course, you have to be careful pulling levers that aren't evidence-based. So um, if you do something like, uh, for example, if there was no evidence that closing roads um, was beneficial to wildlife and you kept all these people out of the backcountry, that would be sort of unfair and it wouldn't really be the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze, but because there is evidence, um, it's a, it's a useful and meaningful, uh, lever to pull. So my, my goal is to provide rigorous evidence that, um, is one of the many levers that could and can be pulled. And, and I think it's, my interests are much broader than just grizzly bears and extend to general carnivore conservation and, general wildlife conservation. So like I said, I mean, the road mortality problem, like especially highway and railway mortality problem, um, in some parts of uh, Canada, grizzly bears have become emblematic of that. Like in Banff, the grizzly bear rail collision problem, um, Parks Canada and CP Rail invested $3 million in that problem. Um, but elk are getting hit on that highway too. Uh, elk are getting hit all through this valley. There's undoubtedly, there's way more elk getting hit than grizzly bears because there just simply are more elk. More of them. Yeah. Um, so when we start getting into that level, like it's not that we want to see grizzly bears not hit on the highway or no more grizzly bears hit on the railway. Like we want to see wildlife not get hit on the railway So or highway. So when we start looking at management solutions, these, these kind of issues are multifaceted, like multi-species, and they cascade to other species that we don't have evidence for or where they're not focal at the moment so you know big scale landscape conservation here uh, includes attractant management which uh, we're working on and which evidence from my project is being uh, brought into policy and into meaningful change into like applied conservation but you know longer term goals are about connectivity and you know along the backbone of the continent the rocky mountains like how do we get animals safely across these areas and um, that kind of looks like crossing structures and like in Banff, like, you know, wildlife overpasses that look like natural habitat and, and fencing so that uh, you actually have to cross there. So you can't just also cross on the highway and still get hit. Um, but those are big projects. They're, those are multi-million dollar projects and they involve money and really strong collaboration between um, industry, between government. And public will like that. The, it has to be something that the community wants to see on their landscape. Yeah, definitely. When you, when you start talking about things like those high fences and stuff, it really um, can be intrusive for for communities oh, yeah. feeling like they live in a, a in a gated compound, right? Correct. But so yes. it, you know, the evidence is there. How a community chooses to use it and what options you know they want to want to implement yes. then becomes a social choice. But but your your job is to provide the evidence so people can go forward and make make some decisions yeah and so they don't spend 20 million dollars on crossing structures that animals don't cross yeah like so if (laughs) if we're gonna pull that lever and spend the money then 
the evidence should be there to support it yeah. and that it's worth it to the community. And yeah. the evidence should also be there to say what we expect to happen if you don't. So if you fail to do that, what do we expect this landscape to look like in 50 years or 60 years? If you know, So that's, that's the evidence can also help us look at those two options and say, what do we stand to lose and what do we stand to gain if we start pulling some of these levers? Right, right. <clears throat> and, and what you were also saying too, where evidence on, let's just say, grizzly bear movement in this valley could be um, a surrogate for elk and other species as well because, you know, like a, a good travel corridor or a logical place on the landscape to move with ease might be used by multiple species. So somebody might not be studying every one of those species to go, hey, look, we're, we've all discovered the same thing. They all like to cross here. One study like, you know, yours then might totally might help uh, a number of a number of different species without having to spend lots researching on the other one so for sure and i think, I that's think that's something the, people don't think about right no, exactly yeah and i think that um there's all yeah i mean of course i work with a very diverse group of people all the way from you know an environmental groups that have absolutely no interest in hunting and all the way to you know hunting groups and i, I like i think one of the strongest traits of our project is we involve everybody like uh we also take money from everybody happily and and everybody gets the same answer importantly that um, we do science and provide data-driven answers um, but it happens collaboratively and with everybody at the table because um, these problems are they involve everybody you know this and the people on this landscape have to bear the bear those grizzly bears like on their landscape they have to live with them so they also then have to buy into the solutions that um, the evidence provides. So, yeah, I think that uh, we focus on grizzly bears and that's where a lot of the evidence is directed around, but um, it's definitely not just about grizzly bears. Yeah. 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 It extends far <coughs> beyond those animals. Yeah. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that if they, if they were going to put up crossing structures here or something, they wouldn't just build them off the grizzly bear data. Like we would obviously, we would call her out. We would continue to have it evidence driven, but you would, if you followed the history of that path, you would probably see that something like a grizzly bear had a disproportionate impact on that project starting. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like we would still never like make a crossing structure just because a bear crossed there and say like, okay, well I bet the elk will too. Like we would go through the process of confirming that, but just to get to that stage, there's a whole bunch of groundwork. Like, creating political capital and educating the the public about these issues and something like a grizzly bear or wolverine or even elk um, are great species to do that with. Whereas I, I don't know that you would get the same buy-in even from like a lynx or a, even a cougar or a turtle, a, a turtle or a, or a white-tailed deer or <laughs> yeah. a turkey, you know? Yep. So um, those species play a disproportionate role in getting the ball rolling. Yeah. Now, you're also running into a little bit of resistance and a, and a, and a lot of researchers are where you're bringing forward this evidence, um, offering some options and solutions and, you know, giving some pros and cons on the, on the different levers. Um, but people are rejecting it. Um, people are skeptical of it. They're 
they're, yeah, I mean, they're just outright disagreeing. That's not true. Yeah. What, what's, what's going on there, do you think? I think there's two, two main mechanisms I see as one, um, they were never going to accept it. Like there was already kind of a mental block. Like they didn't really want to hear the evidence. Uh, I'll get into that in a second. But the other one is that it just, the evidence strictly doesn't conform to their observations. And that's, both of them are hard to reconcile, but the observations one, um, population density is a common problem. Like uh, we estimate, like I say, um, the number of grizzly bears using this genetic method, the DNA market capture, and it is the gold standard to count grizzly bears and most carnivores and actually many species across the world. Um, it is incredibly statistically rigorous um, and it's the way to do it. There's no question. There's no better way to count grizzly bears here in this valley than DNA market capture. Um, nobody would argue that. But so we, when we produce an estimate or you, you produce a population trend and it doesn't align with what people see on the landscape, it, we face all kinds of pushback on that because people still see a lot of bears and they also, the more rural communities still have to deal with those bears. And there was a bear in their yard last night and they're still having conflict. So they don't feel like there's less bears. Um, and I think that's a consequence of one being in, I'll, I'll use the Elk Valley as an example that, you know, when there's a decline or there, you know, we detected a signal from a decline there were still a lot of bears in the valley because of the attractants. You know, there was still elk carcasses. There was still uh, spawning kokanee salmon. So people still see a lot of bears and these bears move a lot. So there's also a problem of like, um, there could be only a handful of bears, two or three near your town, and everybody could see those bears. So you still get the sense that there are bears everywhere. Every time you walk down a trail, there's a bear track, there's a bear scat. So these people, it feels like there's a lot of bears. Um, so that reconciling that is difficult um, and the scale is difficult because our, our work is at a big scale. Like it goes all the way. It's our study area is 200 kilometers north to south and a hundred kilometers east to west It's 12,000 square kilometers. So across that zone, we detected a decline in these bears, but it doesn't align with what um, some folks experience in their day-to-day -day life. And I think that um, that, that is hard to reconcile. Yeah, it it and it it's it's becoming a in conservation. I feel it's becoming it's becoming a big thing that we do need to figure out how to reconcile um, because like there's a lot of opposition to you know some of this stuff and I, and I know you face a lot of opposition for researching grizzly bears and presenting some of the evidence you do um that's coming you know right before and right on the heels of of the grizzly bear hunt being closed here in British Columbia and people get you know all wrapped around that and conspiracy stuff and you know and all, all sorts of things but I mean we do see it and as you know in a lot of different species and a lot of different places of the world or we're wanting the public to get more involved. We want, um, our elected officials to be more involved, but there's this thing of being skeptical about science, which seems to be kind of almost a popular recreation now, right? Just to, well, just I, to, to diss it. And I think that the, the, the way that we would describe it is that science isn't like findings aren't something that you believe in. 
like they just are it's an it's a question that you answer and i think that a common symptom is that um and i wouldn't say anybody's immune to this even i you know i'm subject to this that it's very convenient to use science that's convenient for how you already think of the world and science that um goes against that viewpoint can be very uncomfortable to uh change your viewpoint and the degree to which people are willing to update their view of the world and their beliefs varies between individuals and i think that's really where the problem is like uh there was very strong evidence that the grizzly bear hunt was sustainable um so whether uh, a population of bears could be hunted at some level is sort of the question like can we harvest grizzly bears at some percent and the answer is yes grizzly bears can be hunted so that's sort of whether the hunt is sustainable um and I, I don't think there's there's almost no hunter that would say that that's not true. Like that science is very convenient. Um, it's also just science. It's just a question. It's and it happens to be very strongly backed by evidence. But you can't really pick and choose what science it, you like. So that's where it gets difficult. Like you can't have science based evidence when you or science based management when you want it. It just sort of is. Yeah. And some of it will be convenient, and some of it. Will not, but it should always produce a better outcome for the land base um, and for the wildlife. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's the key thing I think is that with the skepticism uh, in in people is exactly what you what you pointed to is people have these models that they've developed on how they think the world works, and it's built on their experiences, um, typically on a much smaller area of the land base than, than what, what's being researched, like you said. And so they, they go through life, you know, looking, seeing things and plug it into their mental model and say, yeah, I'm reconfirming how the world works. Um, there's roughly lots of bears on the landscape, very few deer on the landscape, you know, whatever that model is. And then something comes along, which challenges that or contradicts that. So they're, brain's natural reaction is, is to defend no that's that's wrong right because it, it's easier just to continue to say hey your way of looking at the world's right you don't need this 50 years old you don't need to start all over again from from square zero and and f- and figure the world out so there's some natural mechanisms you and know that, that i think there's true across like all facets of society oh absolutely like, that is true for people with climate change and with diet and you know like the percent of meat that you should eat that's heart healthy and all of those things like it's not certainly not restricted to any one user group that Abs- general idea of like resistance to update uh your beliefs is very common very common yeah yeah and and then you know in some respects i do see um i see you know some work being done in science some some scientists um as well that seem to have um the same level of skepticism for people's experiential knowledge. Yep. Um, just, just literally discounting it because, you know, just your observations and your opinions and stuff aren't, you know, aren't necessarily um, valid because we employed this rigorous method method and, and it, it's saying something different than what, than what you believe. And, and I think there's gotta be a way to reconcile those two things where rather than it being an either or thing, it's either people's experiential knowledge drives policy or evidence drives policy, but 
but a combination of those two. And then, you know, the, the third component of that is, um, is traditional knowledge of you yeah. know, indigenous people. Right. And that's a completely different realm of deep knowledge that has thousands of years of, of history data uh, sure. behind it, which has been proven by science to be very accurate, yeah. uh, and, and, and very uh, predictable and valuable. And, and I really see us, um, you know, as a general public, as First Nations and as scientists trying to find that sweet spot <clears throat> where everybody's information, everybody's evidence and all of its forms um, is what decision makers can then take and, and move forward. So, yeah. And so, I mean, for us, um, as a group of scientists, I think that we take the approach of using, uh, again, collaboration with all of these groups and local knowledge uh as a means of hypothesis generation. So, you know, I live here and I recreate here and I have my own set of experiences that help me understand and do science and generate hypotheses um, that I then test with data. But the user groups on this landscape have a strong uh, connection with the land and have a whole bunch of experiences and their fathers and mothers and grandparents grew up here. So they have have a lot of knowledge as well. And so I think that uh, we look at the user groups across all those facets of society and the valley as generators of hypotheses. So not so much as pitting the evidence at the end against what they viewed, but more so taking their different views of the landscape and the mechanisms that drive wildlife and, and making a question out of it and testing it with data and getting those people in on the ground level to say like, okay, if this is the question, does this seem like an appropriate test of that question? Um, so if, if your idea was that, um, for example, say if grizzly bears are a major predator of elk calves and they, grizzly bears are the reason that we have fewer elk, say that's the idea, then you would get people on board and say, well, what would that look like? You know, um, what percent of calves would have to be killed for us to think that that's a big deal? Um, and what body condition do those calves have to be in? Like they would have to, we have to make sure that they were not going to survive or, or they weren't going to die anyways. So we kind of take that and bring those people in on the ground level and say like, what would seem robust here? And then we can answer those questions with data and then bring them in uh, in the end to say like, well, this was the question and this is the answer sort of thing. So that's kind of how we use local knowledge here to, to prop up our the rigor of our science and make it um, more easily integrated into the knowledge of the community. Yeah. And, and I think that goes back to something you said at the very beginning. And sometimes that rigorous science actually just simply shows what people's experiential knowledge was saying in the first place. Totally. And, yeah. and I, I personally think, and you probably agree too, that that's a good thing. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. As opposed to going, yeah, why did you spend all that money when you yeah. just listened to us in the first place? And yeah. it's like, well, I think it, it's it's better for everybody when a couple of different approaches lands on the same same spot, right? Yeah. Then, you know, that information goes to policymakers or decision makers and saying, yeah, look, it's we have come at this from a, a couple of different directions and it's saying the same thing. and. Well, and I mean, it's, again, it's just, for me, it's all about comfort. Like if I'll go back to the crossing structures, if somebody's going to come to me and put $10 million in my hand and say, where should we build these crossing structures? I'd be very concerned if it was like, well, Clayton Lamb said 
to put them here, here, and here. It'd be like, no, 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 no. Like the data said that this is where the bears cross or this is where the elk are. Cause like, if it doesn't work, then that's sort of something that we all have to come in together and like, okay, like why did that or what happened there? But it should work because the bears are already crossing there and that's the evidence. But if I just sort of decided it was there and it didn't work, like it would all be on me and maybe not surprising it didn't work. You yeah, know? So yeah, exactly. there's sort of a comfort in evidence too. And it goes a lot of ways. Like if we want to hunt grizzly bears and we had no evidence that we weren't driving them to zero with hunting, then that would be very uncomfortable for a manager and for a hunter, I would hope too. Um, but we had good evidence. So yeah, the um, there's some comfort in rigorous evidence for, for me anyways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think, what, what does the future hold for, for grizzly bears? I find it to be like a little uncertain at the moment, especially with the closure, recent closure of the hunt that sort of changes the social landscape of grizzly bear management because, um, historically the hunters were a major player in grizzly bear conservation. There was sort of a, again, I'll go to the valley level here that, um, we have a, high non-hunting mortality problem in the valley and the way that the harvest quota worked was that non-hunting mortality so say killed on the railway or killed in town directly came out of the hunter's quota and um, that basically meant that every bear that was killed on the train was one less that could be harvested so there was a lot of uh, positive feedback to reduce non-hunting mortality to increase quotas um Whereas without the hunt, that sort of pressure has gone away and the risk on the train persists and those sort of problems persist or get worse. And the buy-in from hunters seems to potentially have diminished a little bit. You know, that positive feedback is not there. Um, so that that support from the hunting community is sort of uncertain. Uh, some groups, you know, are still, uh, I guess... Um, involved in bear conservation and actively funding it. And then some have sort of taken a step back and uh, headed more in the direction of conserving elk and sheep and things that they are still engaged with. So I think that's one uncertainty. Um, I think that we are quite close to reaching like back to a landscape carrying capacity um, of grizzly bears that a lot of that recovery has happened in the last 20 years. Um, there's places like the Okanagan Valley where bears are actually still moving back into that valley as we speak. So those are places that will be recolonized slowly um, if the social landscape allows that. Um, so yeah, I think we will continue to see high rates of conflict um, because we should have as many or more bears in these human-dominated zones as the populations expand. We have human uh, populations expanding simultaneously into remote areas that were secure for grizzly bears, um, either in, uh, as cities and, you know, we're building houses at the side of Mount Fernie right now. So penetrating into wilderness, um, and then just logging and general recreation, increased access and things like that. So we kind of had this landscape of sort of recovering bear populations that are simultaneously being, uh, eroded by, uh, an expanding human population. So the human bear overlap should only increase. So, um, the solution to that is again, this carnivore coexistence and this collaboration, like there are, there's a strong body of evidence to suggest that humans and carnivores can coexist. You know, there's a number like electric fencing and all these sort of spacing away type options. And it doesn't mean that you can't leave your house or you can't go into the bush. That involves like putting 
electric fencing around your elk at your camp and carrying bear spray and very simple things like not major life changes. Yeah. Um, but some small improvements can actually create a quite positive Handle- landscape of coexistence. Handling practices for handling road kills. Yeah. Dead, dead cows on a ranching operation. Of those, course. those sorts of things. Yeah. And it, and it will also still mean some animals will need to be destroyed. Um, that will just be a, a, a result of that. Um, we will have animals destroyed in these big towns like Fernie and like Sparwood and like Banff. I think as long as there are bears there, we will have some level of conflict, but um, to whatever degree we can reduce that and also prop up those backcountry populations to ensure that if we do have a bad year in the valley, that those immigrant animals can still move in and make sure that we have a sustainable bear population here and sort of keep that sourcing dynamic active. Yeah. Yeah, the the management of those backcountry wilderness areas is going to be really key, you know, sure. so that the whole problem of the sink, the black hole situation is not being compounded because they're being driven out of the backcountry because, you know, they're, the berry crops aren't as good or the road density is too high or there's too much industrial activity that, that um, you know, yeah, the, the, the human settled areas are going to continue to to develop and stuff, but keeping wilderness areas as wild as possible is very important. Is going to be key. Yeah, both sides matter, and I think you know development that's uh, that's in um, alignment with sustainable wildlife conservation is important too. Like thinking about how elk and deer and grizzly bears and all these animals want to use the landscape. So you know, developing in a more sustainable and high density fashion and things like that are probably also going to be in our future as well as the human population expands. Yeah. And it's good to see, I mean, communities are talking about these oh, yeah. things. Yes. Uh, small communities are talking about this everywhere, you know, yeah. in, in the province. And, and uh, you know, as long as there's research like yours and all the other people that are out there, they're putting evidence into those discussions at a community level. I, I, I would hope the future is is good for, you know, for grizzly bears and, and all these other big species on the landscape. Yeah. I think it can be in like really, really positive collaborations with the community can be very beneficial as well. Like here with the city of Fernie, I have a really strong uh, connection with the council and with the mayor of Fernie. Mm, And so as we're dealing with these um, connectivity problems and especially these carcass pit issues, um, the roadkill, the, the city is actively involved and real advocates of evidence as well. And so that, you know, uh, is a very positive um, collaboration. Those are have. those are good things to see, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. So what uh, <clears throat> as we're kind of closing up here, what, what would would be your advice advice to listeners um, that are interested in this, that want to help, that want to contribute? Um, what what can people do? I think that at a at a big scale, any sort of um, uh, conflict reduction measures that people can do like again electric fencing around your um your camp or your kill or just you know having your your um elk hanging in a cargo trailer or something that doesn't bring a bear into your hunting camp uh bear sprays incredibly important um and then just advocating for science and evidence in wildlife management that could mean um talking to your mla or talking to your local rod and gun club and saying that you want to have a scientist there to talk to you about what the evidence suggests um, yeah, so I think those sort of things are to so keep keeping informed yeah. is, is key and, and diverse information like, you know, and seeing what your community wants is doing for wildlife and all those sort of things. So to advocate for sustainable, 
um, land use and um, coexistence with wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. And there seems to be a lot more um, opportunities available to people that are interested because people like yourselves are getting out in communities, making presentations there. You're translating your research papers into language and and ideas that people can easily understand, uh, which, which is great to see a lot more of that, um, that, that interface happening between, between science and the public as well. So, and there's groups around like wild safe BC and different organizations that you can go to for information on best practices, what you can do. There's even, there's organizations here in town that will come and collect your fruit off your trees for you, right. To help get rid of, rid of attractants. So there are, uh, there are a lot of, you know, resources out there for people and even organizations to belong to, right? Like depending on, you know, what your, what your value system is, there's a lot of organizations out there that are raising money and putting money into science like, like yours. So people could get involved at that level of joining an organization and actually even making donations to, towards science. It's, it's critical that, uh, if you care, uh, to, to get, to get involved for sure yeah make your voice heard and be part of the solution is there anything we missed today i don't think so covered a lot of stuff i'm sure we could go on forever yeah we could <laughs> we could no i, I think and i know you want input into the, you're doing renos <laughs> and uh he's clayton's on twitter here and he's like he can't make a decision and um, so he's got these different colored um um flooring and he's like well what looks best on my that's our next floor. problem. So, so he needs evidence to make this decision. So he's 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 waiting until he gets a number of responses on his on his Twitter feed, and then he's going to run the stats on it. <laughs> Try and to use evidence wherever I can. Yeah, yeah. So far, it's a little murky. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, know, I know, honey, I know you like the light color, but but actually, the stats say that the dark mahogany is. <laughs> it's significantly different than how you feel. <laughs> I don't know if that would work. <laughs> you got any? Um, kind of like final takeaway messages for listeners? What? Um, I, not particularly. I mean, I guess the same of like being willing to uh, listen to different viewpoints and update your perspectives on, um, on the way the world works and, and also be sensitive when, people aren't willing to listen to yours you know like if say as a scientist i'm going to share information with you but am unwilling to listen to your experiences and that's also maybe a red flag but um yeah i think willing to update your views on the world based on evidence and to uh work collaboratively amongst all these different groups i think that the one group one use focus um is probably unlikely to succeed uh that this valley is a good example of that you know with industry and mountain biking and people that want to use the river and people that want to hunt elk and all the different uses of the landscape the only real way to um, see your your use of the landscape flourish is to do it in a collaborative framework yeah definitely and and collaborate and communicate and talk with other people for sure not on social media have a coffee have a sit in a living room go to a community meeting yes that's that's where uh yeah more likely (laughs) (laughs) cool um so where where can people find you on social media i know you got a website as well yeah i have a website uh 
lamb-eco-research.ca. Okay, we'll um, put that up on the show notes. Yeah. He's got a lot Twitter. of his papers that he's published, yeah. um, projects that he's working on, uh, what, what, he's, what he's about, what he stands for. Yeah, yeah, Google me. I'm sure you'll see a lot of awkward media photos, <laughs> <laughs> some sort of strange pose. Yeah, I'm sure they should, should be able to find me. Okay, and Twitter's Twitter's a big one you use, right? Social yeah. media. Yeah, I'll be posting pictures of the landscape changing, or a bear's foot, or who knows, flooring, flooring. Yeah, flooring, yeah. yeah. I hope I get a lot yeah. more followers so, so I can leverage them for my flooring issues. So, <laughs> so if you're listening to this, go find uh, Clayton Lamb on Twitter and help him uh, build up a, a, a data set for this floor decision, and and just get on and um, follow him, interact with him. I think you're one of the most um, of wildlife scientists and academics that I follow. You're on a lot. You're very positive. You share a lot of information, uh, what you're doing, um, information about uh, di- different species and stuff that even your peers and, and stuff are like, wow, I didn't know that. Or that's so cool. And, yeah. and um, you'll talk to people. Yeah. You know, if they're reasonable on social yeah. media <laughs> with you. Uh, I've, I've, I've always seen Clayton. Um, answer back an honest question so um thanks thanks for your time Um, this was an awesome discussion Uh, i hope people um, got a lot out of it and thanks for listening to episode one of the hunter conservationist podcast you can uh, go onto the web and find us at the hunterconservationist.com sign up for a newsletter and read some articles and follow us along and we will see you in episode two thanks everybody thanks